If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you, and we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though, so if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review, all this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. I have these four cornerstones that we really must work to shift from domination to partnership which starts with childhood, goes on to gender, goes on to economics, but a very different from capitalism, you know, going past capitalist and socialist theory to what I call a caring economics of partnerism. And as you said, different stories and different language. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Rian Eisler, a social system scientist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research, writing, and speaking has transformed the lives of people worldwide. Books she's authored include Sacred Pleasure, The Real Wealth of Nations, and Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. And she's especially known for her earlier book, The Chalice and the Blade, which just published in its 57th edition in the United States with a new epilogue to contextualize it with our present struggles of injustice. Dr. Eisler, it's an absolute pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I would be curious to begin by hearing about the pivotal moments in your personal life that first sparked your interest in exploring power dynamics and social configurations that, of course, later gave way to your immense contributions to our understanding of cultural history and transformation. Well, I sometimes think of my life as the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together 
But my passion for this work, and I have a great deal of passion for it, is really rooted in some pivotal experiences, as you intuited. First, I was born in Vienna, in Austria, at a time when what I call a regression to a domination system, the rise to power of the Nazis, was happening. And so from one day to the next, really, my whole life was rent asunder. The gang of Gestapo men came to our house on crystal night, so-called, because of all the glass that was shattered in Jewish homes and businesses and synagogues, and dragged my father off. So I, I saw cruelty, insensitivity, destructiveness. But I also saw something else that night that has really been a very important observation in my life. I saw what I call today spiritual courage, the courage not, as we're told, you know, to slay the dragon, the enemy, but the courage to stand up against injustice out of love. And my mother displayed that courage. And she recognized one of the men that came as a former errand boy for the family business, you know, a young Austrian Nazi. And she got furious. And she said, how dare you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. And she could have been killed because many Jewish people were killed that night. But by a miracle, she wasn't by another miracle, and yes, some money did pass hands. She got my father's release, and by yet another miracle, we were able to escape my native Vienna at night, just carrying what we could carry, really. And uh, my parents had been able to purchase entry permits to Cuba, one of only two places in the world, Shanghai and Cuba, that let desperate Jewish refugees in at that time. And so I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana, where I experienced and observed another injustice, the immense gaps between haves and have-nots, and yes, dire poverty around us in Havana at that time. So that, that led me to questions that really my work is designed and does answer, I mean, the question of, does it have to be this way? Does there have to be so much cruelty and sensitivity, so much destructiveness? How can we build a culture, a world where that is different? Is that possible? And my research to just fast forward, yes, the answer is absolutely yes, but to do so, we have to really think differently about human societies and take into account the whole of the society. And I'm going to stop with this answer because I mm. don't want to give a monologue here. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And what a story. What I find really refreshing about your work is that it transcends a lot of the binaries that we typically get stuck in or that spark a lot of divisiveness between people when one way of thinking or one ideology or way of being is pit against an opposite way of being. So in what ways do you see these conventional social categories as being 
insufficient in understanding the deeper roots of our varied injustices? Well, if you really think, as I had to do in embarking on my multidisciplinary cross-cultural study of human societies, past, present, and of course also what are the possibilities for our future, if you really think about right-left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist, right? These are the categories that, as you say, we are taught are our alternatives. But in reality, there have been oppressive, repressive, violent societies in every one of these categories. So none of them really answer my question, do they? What kind of society will support our human capacities for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, rather than actually requiring that we express, because we already, we know we have these capacities, our capacities for insensitivity, for cruelty, for destructiveness. But if you look even more closely, what you see is something astounding, which is that these categories either ignore or at best marginalize the majority of humanity, women and children. I mean, think about that. If you're going to examine society, you have to look at the whole of society, including where we all live in our personal lives, in our family lives, right? And again, fast forwarding, we today know from neuroscience, as I write in Nurturing Our Humanity, which has a lot of the newest studies from neuroscience, that our brains, nothing less than how our, than, than the architecture of our brains, and hence how we feel, how we think, what we think is normal and possible, and yes, how we act, including how we vote, is really a function very much of these early childhood experiences. And of course, since we're in domination systems, socialized for rigid gender stereotypes, right? You know, men, a real man, well, a real man is not being like a woman, right? <laughs> so right there, you have uh, the devaluation of caring, caregiving, uh, nonviolence, which are associated with women and the feminine. You have to take these things into account, and I did, and I came up with, well, I, what I observed looking at, at the span of our history, including our prehistory, and at cross-culturally, I kept seeing configurations, social patterns that kept repeating themselves. There were no names for them, of course. So I called one the domination system and one the partnership system. And yes, the status of women, of children, it's really very, very integral to these two human possibilities. There's a connection between how a society structures parenting how it structures gender roles and relations, and whether it is more peaceful, more egalitarian, more sustainable. 
So on that note, I know that in your work with your co-author, Douglas Fry, you explore how forager communities were the original embodiment of partnership systems. So it leads me to wonder whether communities rooted in partnerism, by extension, naturally have this reflected in their relationships to the land, where it's not about domination and extraction and control, and whether it's still possible for human communities of partnerism where there are relationships of mutuality amongst human beings to still act in human supremacist ways against other forms of life? Yes. Again, the answer is yes. And you see this in the uh, modern, I mean, contemporary nations that have moved more to the partnership side of the partnership domination social scale. And it's never... There is no such thing really as a complete partnership society or a complete domination society. It's always a matter of degree, okay? Mm. If you look at Northern European nations, like, well, let, let me talk about Finland, for example, which has a partnership configuration. There is more equality, more democracy in both the family and the state, okay? There is much more gender partnership and hence more caring policies, including caring for our natural life support systems. I mean, these nations are really way ahead of us with moving towards alternative energy. And there is less violence. You know, there's going to be some violence, but well, we know, for example, and I'm sort of jumping, uh, being nonlinear here, but if you really look at our history and this notion that war is just human nature, actually what archaeology shows is that war is at most five to 10,000 years old. Think about mm. that. It's a drop in the evolutionary bucket. And if you really think about modern progressive social movements from, you know, from this new perspective, you see that they've all challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination, including, of course, our once hallowed conquest and dominion over nature. And that this norm that we know today is just a drop in the bucket, I think that really puts things into perspective. And it also leads me to be curious about what it was that sort of flipped the switch for our humanity from the ways that it was with not the same forms of institutionalized violence and war as the norm into this current reality that we know today. Well, there are many theories about the shift, but the one that I subscribe to and that is actually in my books and is being more and more verified even by DNA evidence, okay, is that during a period of enormous climate changes as well as other dislocations, horde upon horde of nomadic herders in, in Europe, Indo-European herders from the increasingly unsustainable, uninhabitable steps came down into the earlier 
more partnership-oriented civilizations. And, and I want to emphasize this issue that my work draws from new ways of looking, new theories about how complex living systems both maintain themselves and how during times of great dislocation, disequilibrium, they are capable of fundamental, fundamental transformation, uh, like chaos theory, nonlinear dynamics, self-organizing theory. And to, again, fast forward, <laughs> uh, we are going through such a period today. In fact, I mentioned the, the progressive social movements. They all really arose starting in about the, you know, with the 18th century so-called rights of man movement challenging the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to dominate, to rule over their subjects. And then the feminist movement challenging again the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children, uh, the uh, movements to change this so-called divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over, quote, inferior ones, as I said, all the way to the environmental movement, challenging our once hallowed conquest and dominion over nature. But they all happened during times of disequilibrium. First, the industrial revolution getting into high gear, starting in about the 1800s. And now we are in a very rapid period of enormous environmental, economic, social dislocation due to the, in part, two things. One is the shift from the industrial to the post-industrial knowledge service age. And the other is that a high technology that we today have are really informed and driven by an ethos of conquest and domination is about to do us in. You know, mm -hmm. you're seeing it before you, climate change it's called. But right. it's more than climate change. It's the dying off, the killing off of so many species. It's the fact that we live on a finite planet despite the injustices, yes, of course, better distribution would help, but we live in a finite planet. And it is impossible to sustain unless we shift more quickly and in a more coherent and organized way to the partnership side of the spectrum. And that does start with what I've proposed, our four cornerstones, which begin with childhood and gender. So to support this path, you've shared that we need to tell different stories that illustrate partnerism so that we're able to even envision what alternative ways of organizing ourselves can look like. Because if domination is all we know, we might just keep replicating that in different forms without realizing. So I was thinking about storytelling and what stood out to me is that from an entertainment industry standpoint, with their profit and viewership motive, things like drama, conflict, and power struggles, and this oppressed protagonist triumphing in the end by defeating their, their oppressor, it feels like these types of stories embedded within domination systems are more sellable, 
dramatic, interesting, and also more relatable for the majority of us who have our struggles tied to our major system of domination. So I wonder if you've thought about the challenges of us being able to tell and embody new stories as the mainstream where partnership is the norm. And also, I wonder what conflict would even look like within partnership systems, because I can't imagine that meaning an absence of conflict or violence. This is a real challenge that you've brought up, Kamiya. And we have been socialized to expect that adrenaline surge, right? But how about if we have stories, and we do have a few, that give us more of an endorphin surge, Mm. a surge in feeling good rather than in feeling agitated. To give you some some real-life examples, we are working now uh, with some filmmakers on two documentaries, one for theatrical release called Humankind, which is a double entendre, isn't it? You know, human Mm -hmm. and kind. Mm -hmm. And the other one, just snippets for the partnerism, well, the movement to make partnerism mainstream. And the premise there is that people are curious. People want a better system. People want answers, and people understand, as Einstein put it, that you cannot solve problems, as he observed, with the same thinking that created them. So I I am with you. I think that we've been addicted to this adrenaline surge from, you know, one of the, the films that get the most audience are these epics, really, where, as you say, the, it's a fictional story that somehow good will triumph in a system that is designed to actually su- suppress people mm. rather than the other way around. But there are stories that tell of people's search, of people's uh, struggle against uh, the well, against climate change, against the eradication of other species. The Black Lives Matter is a story of people struggling mostly through peaceful means, through nonviolent means, to fundamentally alter an oppressive system. The Me Too movement, I mean, these are real-life stories, aren't they? And while on the topic of how stories influence the power dynamics that we embody, coupled with, as you mentioned earlier, how greater societies and familial dynamics influence whether we're guided towards partnerism or domination, do you think religion can play a role in solidifying certain ways of being and thinking? Because there are certain religions rooted in stories of hierarchy, established order, dominating power, and punishment by a superior, as opposed to, for example, some indigenous stories that are rooted in the co-creation of life. So while the dynamic of partnerism and domination definitely transcends or underlies our major social and political categories, is it possible that our worldviews, which may be guided by the creation stories that we're told, can still shape our ideologies of ideal social dynamics, which then may inform our politics and visions of the future that we want to either maintain or work towards? Yes, absolutely. And I think that progressive religions, and I use 
progressive now as a synonym with more partnership-oriented religions have failed in really in two things. One is I wrote an article for for a journal called Cosmos that that I think is really essential, bringing religious leaders from all denominations, including the indigenous ones that you mentioned, but yes, also Christianity, Muslim religion, uh, Judaism, etc., and and of course Shinto and Hinduism and you know Buddhism, together to really sort out the partnership and domination teachings in our scriptures. Now mm. that is not that difficult. I've I've written about it extensively because at the core of most re- world religions, even the ones that have become these terrible hierarchies, right? you know, of domination and violence, etc. At the core are partnership teachings, so-called, really, if you think about them, teaching so-called feminine or soft values, like caring, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, whether it was Isaiah or Jesus. But the religious denominations that are more partnership-oriented, have failed to do this, have failed to point out the reality, which is that the people who call themselves, for example, in the United States, fundamentalist Christians are, yeah, they're fundamentalists about domination, and they're hardly Christian in the sense of the teachings of Jesus, of caring, of empathy, of nonviolence, right? And so that's a very, very important thing to do. But there's also something else, which is that we really need to understand that it's like an old, beautiful picture, you know, a painting that's been painted over with domination teachings. Mm-hmm. So I think that this project is an essential project, and I would like to invite everyone who's listening to ask their religious leaders to read the Cosmos article, read my works, my books. I mean, I've written so many articles, but and and and, and engage, bring bring other leaders together to do this, because for what you say to happen is going to require that we not only deconstruct, but reconstruct. In other words, that we start really emphasizing the partnership teachings.
And in exploring different forms of power with my recent past guest, Daniel Lim, where he discussed supremacist power as opposed to liberatory power, which sort of reflects the dichotomy you've explored between the power that comes from domination over and the power that's practiced in partnership with, this question came up for me that I'm curious to hear your answer to, which is that if you had a community rooted in domination next to a community rooted in partnership, where the one rooted in domination may have inherent interests in expanding to conquer and dominate and own even more, is it inevitable that domination will become the major social force across our global society once that switch is turned off? And perhaps this is an example of when Native Americans generously shared knowledge and gave resources to the initial European colonizers who ended up just taking advantage of that to take over and to conquer because the stories they may have been embodying were ones of domination and not partnership. I absolutely do not think it's inevitable. Mm. And it's for the simple reason that even people within the organizations that are really structured around the top-down domination system are beginning to understand that in our post-industrial economic era, these hierarchies of domination are not effective. However, we also have to recognize that there are hierarchies in partnership systems, what I call hierarchies of actualization. And that's where we're talking about the difference between power over and power with. But I also want to add to power with, power to, creative power. Mm -hmm. For example, we are now having a lot of discussion about how can we program AI for partnership rather than domination. That's a very important question, isn't it? Mm. But people have to know, as you have emphasized, Camille, that there is a reality, a possible reality that in bits and pieces we're moving toward, which is a partnership rather than domination organization. And I think that it is essential that people have this conceptual frame. Why? Because as long as the environmental movement is in one place and then the Me Too movement is in another and the Black Lives Movement is in another place and the LGBTQ movement is in still another place, the domination systems maintain themselves through fragmenting our consciousness, right? So you think it's really important to weave the threads between all of these different movements that at the core are fighting fighting the same sort of dominating structure. Absolutely. And to make people, and this is especially true of making progressives, people who consider themselves progressive, conscious that gender is not, quote, just a women's issue, that it is a key social issue. And that this thinking of a of an in-group and an out-group of us versus them really starts very early in domination families with this model of our species. I mean, there are two separate, two different forms in our species, right? The female form and the male form. I mean, we know today that there is a spectrum in between. But if you have a mental model 
of rigid gender stereotypes where the male form, which is characteristic of all domination systems, whether it was Nazi Germany, Romania's Iran, the Taliban, ISIS, the rightist fundamentalist alliance in the US, Stalin's former Soviet Union, you know? I mean, men are to dominate, right? If you have this model of male superior, female inferior, you equate all differences then with either superiority or inferiority, dominating or being dominated, being served or serving, right? And it's a ready-made model for maintaining domination systems, which are based on scapegoating, aren't they? People who are brought up in domination cultures or subcultures as mediated largely through families, but also religion, education, economics, etc., they are more comfortable, really, with top-down rule, with a, quote, a gender stereotype of the, quote, strong male leader, right? Mm. So they are going to feel more comfortable voting for somebody like Trump, for example. And it is very sobering, but these people really are being told by their authority figures a complete alternate reality story. And denial is really very much part of that mindset, whether it's climate change denial, whether it's election result denial, whether it's COVID-19 denial, right? I mean, this is, this is not coincidental. If the authority figure says that that's how it is, that's how it is. Hmm. And that starts in the early years. And that's why I have these four cornerstones that we really must work to shift from domination to partnership, which starts with childhood, goes on to gender, goes on to economics, but a very different from capitalism, you know, going past capitalist and socialist theory to what I call a caring economics of partnerism. And as you said, different stories and different language. Mm. And I, I, I'd like to really emphasize something here about gender. It isn't only this model of equating difference with superiority and inferiority, dominating or being dominated, being served or serving. We have a hidden system of gendered values in which anything stereotypically in domination systems relegated to women and the so-called feminine, like caring, caregiving, and nonviolence, is devalued. And the stereotypical male masculine, so-called masculine categories, which fortunately today are being identified as, as really dysfunctional, as, as toxic, right? You know, the entitlement, the violence, the domination are elevated. So we have to really unpack that. It's not enough to say we should be nicer to each other. We have to understand that we've all been socialized, including progressives, including people who consider themselves progressive, to not take into account, well, the female half of humanity, as well as well, the majority of humanity, women and children, in what is taught to us 
in our educational system, in our so-called higher education, as important knowledge and truths. Where are the women? Where are the children? I mean, think about that. Right. It was only 50 years ago that we even had women's studies and then men's studies and then gender studies. And, and they're still marginalized in the academy, which is very siloed rather than, than multidisciplinary. And as far as what we know from neuroscience about child development, again, it should be part of sociology. It should be part, as, as it is in my work, okay? Mm -hmm. rather than taught in some occasional psychology or child development course. Yeah. So we are really talking about making some fundamental changes, and it can be done. I mean, you said we had this shift from partnership to domination. Well, we're in the process in bits and pieces of trying to shift towards partnership again. But as I said, if we don't know, understand what's really going on, then the temptation as it has become in some of these movements, you know, vying with each other for the scraps, right? They, they fight each other. And that is not going to get us there. We have to understand that these movements are all related. To me, it speaks to how no matter if we're talking about, you know, a free market system or one that is more controlled by people within the system in a more socialist manner, none of that really matters if we are fundamentally undervaluing care within the system. Because Absolutely. you're still going to end up with a skewed dynamic of domination in the end. So it really goes deeper than that. And I do think a lot of people also conflate free market with freedom and liberation when I think the ultimate goal for me is how can we achieve co-liberation so that we can work towards a system that is more grounded in relationships of reciprocity and partnerism. And so with all this said, it's clear to me that from your work, we do need a collective consciousness shift, this sort of awakening to the relational changes that we need to make amongst ourselves. So with this, my question is, what if those being oppressed, which are the majority, experience these relational awakenings and even might be practicing them in forms of mutual aid and community building in ways that is necessary for them to survive. So what if the majority have gone through these relational transformations, but those with the greatest supremacist power to influence society's direction are still stunted and corrupted by their ability to dominate and control. So in other words, what do you see as being necessary to translate our deeper relational shifts into actual societal structural shifts in our configuration? Well, I think that one thing that's essential is to make the people who are, have control, who dominate the resources, okay, understand that what they have is a first-class cabin in a sinking ship. And a lot of people are beginning to realize that. In other words, the changes of, of consciousness are also happening, but, and this is a big but, we have to change the economic reward system. Now, in my book, The Real Wealth of Nations, subtitle is Creating a Caring Economics, I introduced in 2007, I mean, I'm a futurist and I'm always a ahead of my time, okay? <laughs> but 
the times are beginning to catch up. President Biden is now talking about another concept that I introduced, human infrastructure. Human infrastructure. Why did I introduce that? Because, as I said, for the post-industrial age, even economists who live in, in a really domination system recognize that the most, as they like to put it, the most important capital for this new era, this new economic era, is, quote, high-quality human capital, right? Resilient, flexible people who can work in teams rather than just giving or taking orders, who are creative. Well, we know from neuroscience that whether or not we have this so-called high-quality human capital largely depends on the quality of care and education children receive early on. So there is an impetus. We at the Center for Partnership Systems are developing new metrics. I mean, you have to have interventions that fundamentally alter consciousness. And unlike GDP and unlike most so-called GDP alternatives, the social wealth economic indicators we launched in 2014 and are now with a team of economists in process of updating and condensing into a social wealth index, they focus on showing the economic value, economic value of the work of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. That is what we have to do. We have to really change the rewards. And as I said, even though the term caring economics got co-opted and is now being used to just mean the care economy, you know, direct mm. care work, at least it's entering. I mean, when I first wrote the real wealth of nations and introduce the concept of caring economics, just putting caring and economics in the same sentence was like, what? <laughs> and now you hear it all over, don't you? So we are seeing some change, but I, again, want to emphasize that as important as all of these actions are, without a coherent wor alternative worldview, which is this domination partnership scale, we really aren't going to understand that we absolutely are talking about a massive social, economic, cultural shift. This conversation really reminds me of my recent conversation with Dr. Bayo Akomolafe, where we talked about the limitations of our language and the dangers in grounding our realities in the limiting frameworks that we have already constructed. Because, you know, Earth and all of its ever-changing complexities can't really be reduced and framed in a sort of fixed manner. So in a sense, reductive language can can be incarcerating in fixing us into the present system and dynamics and ways of being, which definitely poses a challenge for us when we're trying to shed the layers of our current reality in social, economic, and cultural 
ways to take on entirely new forms. And I know you've shared similar concerns as well, but what exactly does this look like for you going forward? As in, do we need to invent new words and language? Do we need to perhaps learn the language or learn from cultures rooted in partnerism to better understand what that complexity can look like? Or otherwise, how do we work with the constraints that our current meta-language imposes on us? Well, this is so fundamental, Kamiya. I mean, I cannot emphasize it enough. One of the four cornerstones is narratives and language, language, Mm -hmm. because linguistic psychologists, as you are noting, have told us that our language, the, the categories provided by our language, channels our thinking. So it's almost impossible to see alternatives. I mean, think of matriarchy and patriarchy, right? I mean, either father's rule or mother's rule. There is no partnership alternative. So yes, I've introduced new language, partnership system, domination system, partnerism, hierarchies of actualization rather than hierarchies of domination. We need this new language and we need to understand that the old categories, you know, coming full circle to your second question that you asked me, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist, they fragment our consciousness. They really help to maintain this notion that if we only move to either capitalism or socialism, for example, well, both capitalism and socialism came out of more rigid domination times. I mean, they came out of (laughs) the 1700s and the 1800s, and we're now in the 21st century post-industrial age. So you would think that people would understand that we need a different way of looking at it. But both of them saw, for example, the work of care. Well, caring for people starting at birth was to be performed for free, by a woman in a male-controlled household. So they called it reproductive rather than productive. And you know that's still taught in our economic schools? Mm. Got to change that. But change can happen fast in a time of disequilibrium like ours. So if people like you spread, not just in this conversation, but in other conversation, are terms like partnerism, terms like hierarchy of actualization, terms like a caring economics of partnerism, people start changing their consciousness, don't they? Because they have words for another future. Right. And for me, a lot of this has been questioning the values that we center in the dominant language that we use. So for example, what we how we define advancement and progress and what we center that on or how we define growth and whether we can recenter that on life and biodiversity. So there are so many different layers to this and I think it's it's very affirming to contextualize this with history because it shows us that we've only been this way again just for a drop in the bucket. And so we can change. We're not stuck in in this current status quo. And before we go into our lightning round closing questions, what additional thoughts would you like to add to this discussion that I didn't get to ask you about? And what are your calls to action or calls to deeper inquiry for our listener? 
Well, first of all, I want to share something with you. The Chalice and the Blade, as you may know, was the first book that I published based on the findings from my multidisciplinary cross-cultural a really historical, deep historical study of human societies. And it just uh, a new translation into Spanish is causing a media firestorm in Spain. Mm. I have been interviewed by all the major newspapers there, El País. I mean, so we've got to spread this into the mainstream media. That is an essential thing. As you said, we have to get people to understand that there is a partnership alternative and that so much that we consider new and radical, like the women's movement or the movement for... I've I've been a pioneer, by the way, in expanding human rights theory and action to include the majority of humanity, women and children. Can you imagine that I had to do this? (laughs) and still have to do it. But once people get it, they become creative. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I I have uh, grounded hope in that, that if people understand that there is a partnership alternative, and if they understand that we have to pay attention, close attention to four cornerstones, childhood, and we're seeing... I mean, trends in parenting, for example, towards authoritative rather than authoritarian and violent child rearing. That's an essential partnership movement. Really, it's a cornerstone. And we need an educational global campaign. Education is very much the key here. And I think that since we have now these media of, well, we're on one of them, right? You, these podcasts, mm-hmm. these alternative ways of uh, really understanding what our real choices are. It's up to us to, to change things. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? My husband, Dr. David Loy, is an authority on Darwin. And his Darwin's Lost Theory is, I think, such important reading because Darwin has been used, as David puts it, as the 800-pound gorilla to say that domination systems are inevitable. But if you look at the whole of Darwin's writings, you see, including his book on human cultural evolution, Descent of Man, you see that there's a whole ignored part of Darwin that supports partnerism. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? 
But first of all, I've met wonderful people through this work, of course. But it isn't just that. It is the feeling of contributing, the feeling of making a difference and of having something that, I mean, we're now talking with Meridian University, for example, about us starting a whole concentration for a master's degree in partnership studies. They're already using my work. Uh, we also, by the way, at the center have online courses that we're now converting to on-demand rather than, you know, at a certain time. So education, changing our consciousness, understanding that there is a new frame, I really invite everyone to take advantage of that and then to become what you already are in so many ways, active agents of transformation from domination to partnership. Mm. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Well, I always have to come back to what nurturing our humanity shows again and again based on neuroscience, that the story that we've been told about what is human nature is false, that actually the so-called pleasure centers in our brains light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. So we have that going for us, this human yearning for caring connection. So to our listener, you can find all of this at www.rianeisler.com centerforpartnership.org and partnerism.org. Dr. Eisler, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, really appreciated this thought-provoking conversation that also is extremely grounding in showing that there, there are alternatives that we can work towards. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? One of the comments that I keep getting again and again through email, uh, I used to get it when I was still giving, I give a lot of keynotes online now, uh, rather than in person, you know, because of the pandemic, was I've always known this somewhere in me. And the truth is that so many of us, unless we've been completely brainwashed, know that there is a partnership way, there is a better way, and that it is not only more fulfilling. I mean, we get endorphins, don't we, when we care not only for a friend or for a lover or for a child, but even for a pet, right? We feel good. And it's more effective, as many organizations are learning now. So I just think that's the wave of the future. We need to name it. We need to build it. You are listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered show which you can support and co-create with us starting from just $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't have any corporate sponsors nor a marketing agency behind us. So if you enjoyed the episode and can help share it with your friends or write a review in the podcast app, that would be so greatly appreciated and help a lot. Today's musical offering is Coming Home by Annalie Wilson. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.